We've got some Bibles if you need a Bible today as we study through the 13th chapter of Hosea. We also have some note sheets and pencils to pass out to you that hopefully will be an aid to your study of God's Word this morning. And uh, a lot of announcements today, so I'm going to share a couple more for you that did not get mentioned earlier. Um, Our church is going to need some decorating, and we're going to have to have some help for that as the Christmas season is fast approaching. So there is a new sign-up sheet on the table as you walk into the sanctuary or out of the sanctuary uh, that we would ask you to sign up for. If you're able to stick around on Sunday, September 27th, we're going to transform... November, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know where that came from. Uh, November 27th, we're going to uh, be working together to transform the church to uh, match the season. So we hope that you can join us in that. If you are able to stick around and if you intend to help with that, please do put your name down on the list because if we find that we don't have enough volunteers to accomplish that task between the service and when the Spanish church comes in to, uh, to worship the Lord after us, then we might have to make some adjustments or try to do part of it on a different day. So hopefully we'll get enough signups and people will be willing to stick around and we can do that on the 27th. Um, but we only have a couple of dates to, uh, to, to sign up for that. So please let us know if you're able to join us for that activity. And then uh, secondly, I also wanted to announce that we've had a little bit of change in staffing here at the church. Um, for about three years now, Katie Rapolis has been serving faithfully as a secretary of the church. She is the reason why you have bulletins on Sunday mornings and why we have statistics for the giving um, process properly, why we have overhead PowerPoints that we can sing along to, so many different little things that need to get done that we don't want the pastoral staff to have to care for. Katie would handle that, uh, but just recently she's decided that with the increasing demands um, of, of motherhood, she wants to pull back away from that and spend more time with her, her family, with her kids, and that's a noble thing to want to do. And so um, she has transitioned out of that position, but we're glad to announce to you that Raquel Borland, who just recently became a member of our church, has been more than happy to step into that position. She has been working now for the last couple of weeks and training that spot and learning how to uh, properly function in the role, and she's doing an excellent job. So uh, going on from here forward, if you go up to Katie and you say, hey, can you uh, make sure this gets in the bulletin or make sure that this gets to the prayer sheet, she might just smile at you and point to Raquel. So if you don't know who Raquel is yet, you better find her and uh, get to know her uh, because she's going to be the keeper of the information uh, going forward. A very important role in our church. And if you do see Katie in the halls before or after church, give her a big hug and thank her for the the great work that she has done for us and the blessing that she's been to the body here. Well, despite the challenges that have faced our nation over the last few years, I think we would be wise to consider how blessed we still are to live in a place like the United States of America. I've not been shy about criticizing our nation's faults um, because honesty is important. But the United States is still the country that so many people who are oppressed in the world and have a difficult living situation would literally risk their lives to try to get to. This is still a place where some of the best theological writing in centuries has been coming from because people are free to say what they see in God's Word. Faithful expositional preaching of the Scriptures isn't exactly widespread, but it still remains legal here, friends. And it's protected by our constitutional rights. And as much as the culture pushes back against it, we can still profess the gospel of Jesus, not only from the pulpit, but freely across most of this land. This is still the place that, regardless of where you came from or what nationality you are, you have opportunities to speak your mind and to worship largely without restriction. 
And these are blessings, not just for a select few, but for all who are a part of this country. And these kinds of historically rare conditions don't happen by accident. They happen because people who had to endure living without them became fed up with being denied these kinds of freedoms. They got tired of living without the freedom to speak and the freedom to advance and the freedom to worship as their conscience dictated. And so they fought hard to secure these freedoms for us. And many more since have been willing to put their lives on the line to defend them. Romans 13 describes the governments of the world as having been appointed by God to be a terror to bad conduct, to bear the sword in an effort to defend against what is wicked and to enforce what is righteous and good. Do our governments always do a faithful job of that? No, they don't. But let us be grateful for the securities and the freedoms that have over the years been not only established for our good, but defended by those who have faithfully served in our military and in our armed forces. So an acknowledgement and gratitude for the way that God has used the sword to protect the people of the United States and defend our freedom to worship the Lord and to pursue life and liberty and the right to worship our God. Would those of you who have taken a pledge to serve this nation in the armed forces, please just take a moment to stand, not to take any honor away from God this morning, but as a way for us to acknowledge and praise God for the ways that He has protected us as a people. If you've served even for just a short time, would you please rise to your feet so that we can thank the Lord God on your behalf. Romans 13, 7 says, Pray to all, or Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And on this Veterans Day weekend, uh, it is appropriate then to pay honor to those whom honor is due. And we do that by acknowledging the hard work and the sacrifice of our servicemen and by offering up prayer for those who served, asking God to bless these soldiers and their families as they've been a blessing to us and a help to our freedom. So uh, before we get into the word, let's take a moment and pray and thank the Lord God for the nation that we live in and the people who have worked hard to defend it. And then we'll open up the scripture together. God, you are truly our defender. You are the sanctuary into which we run when we are scared or threatened. But let us not be ignorant of the fact that you choose often to use means like governments and like militaries to defend your own children. And so we thank you for the work that has been done by these who are willing to serve and who put aside some of their own personal comforts and safeties and freedoms so that ours would not be threatened, Lord God. We pray that you would guard their families, especially for those who are serving now, Lord. Some of the great sacrifices that are made to keep us safe happen for spouses of those who are on the field and who have to be away from their families for many months at a time to serve tours of duty. And so we pray, God, that you would not only bless these soldiers, but that you would bless their loved ones, that you would give them a sense of peace in the gospel, Lord God, knowing that our greatest security is in you and in the, the blanket that you provide of protection and care. We pray, Father, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we put our attention upon your word. There is a spiritual war brewing all around us as well. And so help us, Father, to be vigilant. Help us to care about the scripture that you have given to us, which is our faithful guide 
and the testimony of what you desire for your people. Your banner over us is truth and love, Lord. And so help that banner be supported by the efforts of every man, woman, and child who proclaims the gospel and who has been saved by the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for this morning, Lord God. Help us to rejoice in all that you have provided. And I pray, Father God, that you would bless all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We are in uh, the 13th chapter of Hosea. And picking back up where we last week um, ended, we're going to continue to consider the terrible fallout of the northern kingdom turning their hearts and their minds away from Yahweh, who is the source of all life. And so I want to begin by reading in verse 4, because I really think this helps us to set our context this morning. You might remember this from last week's teaching, or two weeks ago. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. For it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Let's stop there for a moment. Yahweh begins here by telling the history of Israel, reminding them where they came from. He says to them, I was like a shepherd to you. I was protecting you. I was providing for your needs. And that, of course, would make Israel like his sheep, a defenseless animal, an animal in need of direction and vigilance and protection. But Israel, after being cared for for so many years by Yahweh, has treated their God as though he was not their shepherd. And when they did this, Yahweh became more dangerous to them than any predator. They turned away from the one who had been their shelter and their strength, and they disregarded his authority in their lives. And by doing so, and by running to sin, they made themselves enemies to God. As we think this morning about the position that the northern kingdom has put themselves in, it becomes more and more clear to us that who God is and how you receive the reality of God's existence is going to be drastically different if you are trusting in Him or if you are not trusting in Him. If Yahweh is your shepherd, the one who protects and provides for your needs, when you think about the Lord, it will give you peace. It will give you comfort and joy to know that He sits on the throne, that He reigns over all things. But if you see the Lord God as a threat to your personal autonomy, as a challenge to you being able to secure your own personal will in all things, then when you think about God, you're not going to think joy and peace. You're going to see Him as a threat to your freedom and to your independence. But one thing is for sure, there is no neutral position that we might take. The agnostic, the one who claims that they do not yet know whether they believe in God or not, is not safer for having yet to take a side. Every moment that we hesitate to accept the gospel and refuse to put our trust in the perfect work of God's Son is a moment that we stand in peril, is a moment that we stand as opposed to the works of this mighty God. And this is where we left off last week. We left off with this, this warning that those who had been shepherded by Yahweh were beginning to forsake their shepherd. And we left off because verse 7 begins such a drastic shift, such a stark contrast 
that I felt these verses served us best to stand as their own point. And so now in verse 7, chapter 13 declares to us, So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Oh, going on to verse 9 as well. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Here we see the vivid contrast between the person who belongs to Yahweh through covenant and the person who has rejected the covenant relationship that God has given to Israel. To he who trusts, Yahweh is a shepherd, a comfort and a help, the source of all safety and goodness. But to he who sets covenant to the side and seeks to live as if the highest authority in their own life is the self rather than God, then Yahweh can no longer be a comfort and a provider. This seems in some ways unloving to us to read of Yahweh as a roaring lion, as a bear robbed of her cubs who comes in anger. But to see it that way, to think of God as being unjust in that regard, we would have to throw out the sheer weight of Israel's sin. We would have to disregard the intense ways that Israel has disrespected the God who has given them all that they are. They are not an innocent people. They have severely disrespected Yahweh. They have given Him heartless worship. They have looked to other false gods and pretended like those gods can do them good. They have put their faith in foreign armies rather than in the power of their God who has made them the nation that they are. They have broken the commandments that God has given to them through the law these commandments which define their interactions with Yahweh. They have disrespected every aspect of the covenant that made them a unique and holy people unto God. And so this language that seems harsh to us of, of God becoming to these people who have rejected Him as a roaring lion or as a, an angered bear, don't let this graphic nature of this language cause you to miss the point behind what Hosea is saying. The Lord becomes to Israel as a dangerous bear, a lion, or a wild beast. And what will this fearful hunter do to the northern kingdom? He will tear open their breast. Beyond painting a graphic, gory picture, this illustration carries meaning. It depicts the hunter literally exposing the heart of its prey, revealing what is inside. The rotten worship and the hollow devotion of this northern kingdom needs to be exposed. The harshness of this prophecy works to vividly rip the blinders off of Israel, who have been trying to convince themselves that they are guilty of no real sin before God. The covenant that we are in today is not a covenant that we experience by birth or by circumcision. It is a covenant that we enter into by the calling of the Holy Spirit if you are outside of that calling, you are without a shepherd. You are counting on shepherding yourself to get you through life. But the adversaries that you are up against are far too dangerous for you to overcome. It's slightly different for this old covenant people that we're learning about in Hosea because they were born into the covenant. They began with a promise of interaction, but it was a promise that was contingent on their faithfulness. It was a covenant of law and works. Praise be to God, the new covenant is a covenant of grace, a covenant where we are graciously offered a place. We are welcomed in by God's holy urging. 
But apart from God, the good shepherd, a person can have no life. And that is the main uh, point of chapter 13 here. We might recognize that the connection to Yahweh was significantly different for the Israelites in the Old Covenant, for they were born into that connection. But their failure to keep the law and the refusal to repent of their failures essentially forfeited their place of a special notion with the Lord. Today, people are every bit as desperate for Yahweh to be their shepherd, but they are born in a state of rejecting Him. We are not born the children of God but rather children of wrath. And it is only by His saving grace that we enter into the fold of God. In either situation, though, the, di the dichotomy exists. Every person is either trusting in the saving and preserving work of God, or they're rejecting the saving and preserving work of God. He is either shepherd to you, or He is a danger to you. Having turned on their shepherd, God anticipates Israel's next move, to look somewhere beside Yahweh for help. We see this in verses 10 through 13. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. This sin, his sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. What is the allure of kings? Why did Israel plead so vehemently with the Lord God to give them a man on a throne? I think part of the reason why Israel initially asked God and begged that they would give to them a king was because it is easier for a man to see himself in a mortal king than in the divine transcendent king of kings. There is a pride in us that wants to imagine that we are the ones in charge. And when Israel looked around them and they saw the nations like Canaan and Moab and the Hittites having a king, an earthly man to whom they could look, to whom they could revere, they desired something like that. And so they begged God through the prophet Samuel to give them something like that. To exalt a fellow man seems at first also to be a little bit less risky, I think, than leaning on God Almighty. I may need a king's help now, but later I might have a chance to move on from that king or out from underneath his authority if I don't like him. Kings come and kings go, and so kings are less dangerous to men. But Yahweh is a different kind of king. Yahweh is intimidating to the heart of man because Yahweh reigns forever. And there is no authority that operates outside of the umbrella of his sovereignty. When we think about what made Israel desire a king, we might even consider that it might be even more tempting to put our trust and hope in a government like we have today, considering our democratic model. Because we are intrigued, I think, with the idea that there's a form of protection and leadership over us but we have a say in that protection and leadership. To think of our political rulers as being representative of our own desires appeals to our want to be the ones who are ultimately in charge of our lives. And yet, what does Yahweh say? He warns Israel that earthly kings are of no use when Yahweh is your enemy. Ultimately, God is the one who must give and can just as easily take away the kings that have temporary stewardship over his covenant people. And those kings accomplish his will, not only their own. 
And I'm not just talking about the good kings here. Solomon, David, Hosea, or uh, not Hosea, Hezekiah. These were good kings, kings that tried earnestly to please the Lord in the way that they ruled. God did much of his will through them, but he also does his will through the wicked kings. When God allows a ruler to take the throne in the old covenant, he goes to great lengths to remind the people that the havoc that is often caused by these disobedient and rebellious kings is in many ways the harvest of the people's individual rebellion and iniquity that they have been sowing against the Lord God all along. And so we must not forget that Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he will. Now, what are, we make, what are we to make of the words that we see in verse 13, which seem a little cryptic, perhaps, on first read? The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. This is best understood as Ephraim's absolute refusal to listen to the warnings that God has delivered to them through the prophets whom the Holy Spirit has inspired. Jose describes the northern kingdom, as being like a baby unborn in the womb who has come full term inside of his mother. There is no more room for that child. There is only one way for the baby to go. The merciful patience of God is willing to deliver that child. And yet, shockingly, they fight against the God who will bring them life. Despite the fact that they feel the contractions all around them, despite the fact that they no longer fit inside their mother, they fight and they refuse to be delivered. And what would the tragic result of that be? It would be a stillbirth. The nation is going to cease to live if they do not respond to the words of the, the Lord God who prompts them. And this plays back to the language of verse 1, where it says, But he, meaning Ephraim, incurred guilt through Baal. And he died. Again, there is no life apart from Yahweh. Every attempt to live free from his sovereign reign, every effort to create separation from God and the promises that bind them to him is an act of self-destruction on the part of the northern kingdom. Yet in the face of this imminent death, there is still a curious expression of hope. In verse 14, Hosea says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Here, as the northern kingdom has divorced themselves in a sense from God, they face the plagues of death. Israel is facing the sting of the grave. It is only the redemptive power of the Messiah whom Yahweh will one day send that will conquer the sting of death, that will overcome the power of the grave, that will neutralize these two great enemies of man. And so let us first make note of these two parallel enemies. First of all, Sheol, the grave, this place where the body goes when the soul has expired. And the second is death itself. These seem like dynamic equivalents, and some people say there's no difference between them, but there's actually some distinction worth noting here. Death naturally comes first to us, and it signifies the end of life as we know it here on earth. All things in the creation are touched by the consequences of sin, which leads to death. 
And so everything that lives within God's creation has an expiration date upon it, a time known only by God when that life will come to an end. There are some forms of death that are more terrifying than others, but the result is the same. Breath stops, and the degree of freedom that God has graciously given to us as we tread this earth comes to a screeching halt. That is death. But the second enemy described here as Sheol is the state of life that a soul enters into upon death. Now the person who lived in the time of the old covenant still looked upon this second enemy. They looked upon this potential of life after death with many questions and with much mystery. But the idea of the grave seemed to them like a prison of sorts for the soul, a holding place for the dead that was decidedly unlike the earth that is the arena of life and vitality. And we know that those who die without faith in God do in fact experience the grave. Their souls are kept in bondage until the day of final judgment, whereby they are sentenced for their rebellion and then finally cast into the lake of fire. God does not bother here to reveal all the mysteries of life after death through the prophet Hosea, but he does see fit to point forward to a future victory, one that will turn the present situation that feels so hopeless and dire right upon its head. Where we are powerless to triumph over these two adversaries, death and the grave, we only have, who only have any power over us at all because of the sin that we have committed against our God, these enemies are no true threat to Yahweh himself. At some point in the future, Yahweh reveals that he will exercise his greater power over death and the grave by the twin blessings of the gospel. We are made aware of these in Hosea's prophecy here. God will ransom his people. That means that by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, the one whom God would send, God in the flesh who would dwell among us, born under the law and born according to all the covenantal promises and restrictions that had been given to the Israelites, this Jesus would live without flaw and without error, never once breaking the commands of God. And then with that perfect life, he would purchase freedom for indebted sinners like you and I. For he would die the death of a sinner, though he was free from the guilt of sin. And by doing so, he would ransom us from the debt that we had accrued. He will cancel the wrath we owe by suffering on our behalf, but he will also redeem us. Jesus does not just nullify the curse of sin, but he gives us the righteousness that belongs to his son, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we are now not only exempt from the punishments that we've earned, but we're now counted as worthy and enabled to serve him in ways that actually bring him glory. Now the song of our praise means something eternally because we have been redeemed in Christ and His righteousness is on display in the lives of those who put their trust in the Lord. Even here in verse 14, almost 800 years before Jesus will step foot on earth, these formidable foes of death and the grave are rendered powerless by the decree of God. He has made known His intentions to us. The statement is not... I may ransom, I may redeem. The statement that Hosea declares to us is, I will redeem, I will ransom. And in the face of God's sovereign orders, it is that as though the plagues of the destruction for which death and the grave are so well known, because of which men tremble, are being nullified 
and rendered impotent before us. We have seen the sad fate of those who reject the Lord God as shepherd. But let us consider what happens to those who receive Christ as shepherd, who persist with the Lord. In our call to worship this morning, Mark read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a portion of that. And I want to read it again and then spend some time reflecting on that with you. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Death is inevitable for most of us. But for the believer, it works as the doorway to a greater final state of existence. I say most of us because as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, not all will sleep, but all will be changed. That is a euphemistic statement. It refers to the fact that when Jesus returns to earth to judge creation and bring about the mighty day of the Lord, that those who are alive at that point and are trusting in him will not even have to taste physical death. At the sound of the final trumpet, that heralds the second coming of Jesus. They will bypass the process of death and enter into immediately the throne room where they will stand before the Lord God. Are you excited for that day, Christian? Joined by every believer who had previously died but are now raised from the grave to new life, they will come before the judge of the universe. With Christ as their advocate, all of their sins will be presented to God as having been paid in full. And they will be declared innocent by the blood of the Lamb. With the new glorified bodies that have been given to them, they will enter into something much better than simply the grave. They will enter into eternal fellowship with Jesus himself and the new Jerusalem that represents, or that rather replaces, the current heavens and the current earth. And they are free from sin, the stain of iniquity washed away by the blood of Christ, free from the restraints of corrupted flesh, they will worship their God with utter joy forever and ever, never ceasing to grow in the knowledge of the truth, serving Jesus with gladness and with glory. This is the inheritance of every true believer. With this clear picture of what is to come, those who reject Jesus still have every reason to tremble. To come before the judge without Christ as our advocate, without him saying, I have died for this one. Though he is guilty in a sense, he is no longer guilty, for I have taken the shame of his guilt. Without coming before the Lord God with that mediator who goes between us and the Father to advocate for our innocency, who gives us his righteousness, we have all the more reason to be terrified. 
to those who believe in the Lord and to know that he will cause all that he has declared to come to pass, it makes perfect sense for Paul to grab a hold of the hope that is laid down in Hosea 13 and to declare with joy the relief that death no longer has victory over believers, that, that the grave no longer has a sting that, that kills us or that causes us great anxiety. Both of these things for the believer have been made powerless by the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the boldness that comes from this new understanding of death is nothing more than God's servant can, can lead the children of God to have what really amounts to an unnatural attitude towards death. We can think about death in ways that we never could have dreamed to think about it before Christ came into our lives. We should be afraid of death if we have no Christ. We should be terrified of this life coming to an end if we don't know what comes after it. If we don't have a blessed assurance that His Holy Word has proclaimed to us and declared to our hearts. But the, the believer who knows better can look death in the eye and say, do your worst. What can you do to me when Christ has given me these mighty promises? We don't have to fear. We don't have to dread death. It does not represent a loss for us in truth, but an eternal gain, one that we have anticipated since we've read of it in the words of God's great scripture. And so even a verse like Revelation 14, 13, which is so radical to the mind of man, can make sense to us when we consider how the believer's attitude has changed towards death, thanks to Christ's awesome victory of both the death and the grave. Revelation 14, 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is one of the glorious things that was revealed to the eyes of the Apostle John when he was given a peek into the throne room of heaven where he could hear the voice of his God declare that blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, that their death is not a loss, but is a gain for them. It is, in fact, the reward of their faithfulness. You don't have to strive on forever in this body that is so limited. And I hear the sniffles around the sanctuary. I see people in their struggles. Pain is real. We deal with it now, but there will be a day when it is conquered forever. There will be a day when our bodies will stop falling apart, will stop unwinding, and there will be a strength that is given to us that comes from a well without a bottom. We will be able to worship the Lord God at full capacity forever. What a gift that death brings to us when those of us who have Christ as Savior can say goodbye to the restraints of this life and can enter into the blessed assurance of God. This declaration of victory over the grave and over death could not be made by anyone other than Yahweh himself. For the stain of sin has given death dominion over every human who is in sin. And that's all of us, friends. It takes God himself, the life giver, to mock the grave. Only he can look upon death without being intimidated. His victory is sure. But the last line of verse 14 reminds us that his promise to ransom and redeem were not to be realized in Hosea's present day. 
but they were being reserved for a future time, a time when the Redeemer would come. In the meantime, the current state of the covenant people is such that the promise of this compassionate salvation is hidden from the eyes of God. He is not yet looking to manifest this victory over death. Though it will come in the fullness of time, it will not come yet in Hosea's day. Returning to the reality of where the northern kingdom sadly is at the time of Hosea's prophecy, verse 15 says, Though he, Ephraim, may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountains shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. What mighty wind will come from the east but the Assyrian army, which some scholars of Hosea suggest may have already begun to lay siege to the capital city of Samaria, even as Hosea writes the words of the last couple of chapters of his testimony. We might take note that Assyria's conquest of the northern ten tribes of Israel is the expression not of Assyria's own power and will, but truly it is the expression of God's will in chastening the covenant breakers of Ephraim. God wants to utilize a devastating wind, and so he makes use of a pagan people who handle the sword in a devastatingly efficient way. The Assyrian soldiers are employed to give the rebellious souls in the north a glimpse of the destruction that comes when the giver and sustainer of life is rejected. And though the northern kingdom has experienced enough prosperity that they are able to convince themselves, according to chapter 12, that they may, they're not really actually in danger. Remember, we, we spoke about how many in Israel, hearing the prophecy of Hosea, tried to argue against the word of God and tried to say, we have many altars. Look at all this worship that's going on here. We're fine. Look at all this prosperity that we've been given. This must be the blessed hand of the Lord. Despite that they uh, have been able to convince themselves that they're not in danger and that their prosperity is evidence that they are guilty of no sin, the fact that they have gained that prosperity by turning away from God, this God that they have been covenanted to, to honor and to hallow and to worship, means that their prosperity is nothing more than an illusion. Surely the pressure of this eastern wind will cause whatever prosperity they can boast of to dry up in a mere moment. Every blessing that Ephraim counts as precious, every valuable gift that they were given by God, whom they have turned away from, will be plundered from their storehouses. Assyria will steal it away and will make it their own. Bit by bit, their, their cities will fall. Their rulers will be removed from their thrones and their freedom will be dismantled. And to put an exclamation point on this prophetic warning that, has been, uh, that Hosea has been instructed to deliver, Hosea the prophet finishes this chapter by reminding his readers of the grim tactics of the Assyrian military, tactics that they're going to soon experience firsthand. He says in verse 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Can you imagine a more terrifying imagery than this? Of all the treasures in their storehouses, of every precious blessing they have received from the hand of Yahweh, none compares to the children that the life giver has blessed them with. If a robber was to come into your house, armed with weapons, 
and bad intentions, you would hand over your money to them. You would relinquish your jewelry and whatever other valuable thing they wanted, but you would plead with all of your might that these villains might not lay a hand on your children. What a precious resource our little ones are to us. And the extent of Israel's rebellion to God is revealed in verse 16 when he says that even their unborn little ones will be killed by the sword of these Assyrians. The pillaging and murderous ways of this army that's coming from the east meant that even this most precious blessing will be torn away from them. The Assyrian army will even target the very unborn children of these sinful and rebellious Israelites. Do you remember the description that Hosea made in verse 13, where he spoke of Israel as a people so stubborn that they were like a baby in the womb who feels the birth pains all around them, who clearly sees that every sign is alerting them that, that it's time to be born. It is time to leave the womb, turn from the darkness, and move towards the light. And yet Israel refused to present himself at the opening of the womb. In verse 13, the consequence of such foolishness was a stillbirth. But here in verse 16, Hosea warns of the same consequences that simply comes in a more violent way. God refuses to defend those who have forsaken the covenant against the terrible nation of Assyria and their barbaric warring tactics. To turn away from God, this God who is the only giver of life, is no harmless option. Though we have insulated ourselves to some degree from the mortality of man in a society where we push death to the side and we don't think about it, it is nonetheless true that we are vulnerable to death and destruction every single day. The only thing keeping mankind from imploding in on itself is the restraining hand of a sovereign God. Who could protect Israel from this grisly fate? Who has the power to turn back even the most merciless army? Who is more than capable of forgiving Israel's sins and bringing her out of the guilt that she has heaped upon herself? Only Yahweh, the giver of life. And perhaps the most tragic aspect of this terrible suffering to come is this, that the northern tribes were warned and giving every opportunity to turn away from their sin and return to the God who had given them life in the first place, and yet they did not. Do you see the urgency of this repentance, friends? Does the prophecy of Hosea make clear to you the grave danger that any man puts himself in when they think they can live their life apart from the mighty hand of God? But I hope you see more than just the danger and the dread that is ordained for Israel to suffer here. I pray that you also see in an even more vivid way the beauty of God's plan to ransom and redeem. A hopeless people who is warned to turn but chooses death instead will be the object of God's mercy and grace. Not a people hungry for God, not a people who did their very best to live holy lives, but just needed that little bit of help to get them over the hump and to help them to defeat their few remaining temptations. That's not who God comes to save. No, those who have no desire for God, those who see the consequences of their actions and barrel headlong towards destruction anyways. Those who are obstinate and stiff-necked and will not accept another way of life other than their own desires, even if it kills them, these are the very people to whom God will send His beloved Son. And through the power of His grace and mercy, these are the kinds of people that He is working with when He redeems a sinner. 
You do, do not think then that Yahweh waited around for 800 years until a generation of soft-hearted, faithful people had been born who were ready to seek God's face and had, had anticipated the, the promises of Scripture and said, we better get our act together. We better get our heart in line. And then Jesus came. No. Jesus came to save the wretched people just like the inhabitants of the northern kingdom. He came to see, save even people like you. In the New Testament, sin is called a slave master to us, to all who have not been set free by the grace of salvation. If you are clear-minded enough to see that mighty power that sin has over you, know that the allure of sin is nothing compared to the power of God, who can, with a word, radically change your heart and turn it towards Him. He did it in the course of history when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and He is doing it today. May the word of the Lord rest on our hearts. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for all that you give to us in Christ. And as we come before Hosea today and even see signposts pointing forward to Calvary, we are grateful, Lord God, that redemption and the ransom that Jesus brought was not an afterthought. It was never plan B. God, you always intended to show through the historical demise of Israel the stubborn hearts of men who cannot keep your law. And that doesn't just apply to the Israelite. It applies to every man born of Adam. Your son Christ had to come to this world so that one who was perfectly human and perfectly God would be willing to give the sacrifice that could alone cover our sins. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are redeeming people even today, that you are bringing people who have been shrouded in darkness into light, that you are changing their hearts and their desires so that their sins will no longer be beautiful and wonderful to them, but will become instead ugly to them as they consider the greater beauty of Christ. Help our desires to be matching the desires of, your Savior, of our Savior, Lord. Help the Son's way of living completely dependent upon you and completely submitted to you be the way of life that we desire for ourselves. You are holy and good, Lord God. Continue to save. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.